Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes, where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. This time I'm asking Doc Hassel, and at Colonial Williamsburg, he's Master Brass Founder. And I think I know what that means, but when people talk about founders around here, there's so many different kinds that you get confused. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people have an image in their in their minds of what a founder is, but I think in a lot of cases it's uh, more of an industrial uh, vision that they have of a big iron-steel foundry. But foundries are sort of like smithing shops, that there are a lot of different kinds. And what what a foundry is really is just any place that is doing metal work by melting the metal, and then pouring it. Oh, pouring so, it yeah, into you're, a mold. Casting, exactly. Casting, yeah, okay. Exactly. So okay. smiths, on the other hand, usually were hammering, forging the metal. Yeah, they would heat it to make it malleable and then right. beat right. it. <laughs> but we, we heat it beyond that point to where it's liquid. It actually melts. And then, as you said, we construct molds and then pour the, the metal into that. So let me see if I've got this right. Uh, you get used brass. You can melt that again and repour it. You can pretty much. Uh, most metals, I guess, you can you know melt down and recast without hurting them. Uh, in the colonial period, that was the principal source of metal because there was so little mining being done in the colonies and. Oh. Yeah, you, know, you could you could import raw metal from England. It, it uh, in most cases wasn't illegal, but it was taxed generally. the The idea, you know, that a colony was supposed to be more of a, a market for English manufacturers, and we would be supplying raw material going back to to England. So they uh, didn't tax the finished goods that left England, but they did tax raw metal. But you know, we could get around it by just buying up old, broken, worn-out pieces, things that had been made earlier and melt it, rework it. That's pretty much any kind of metal that you needed. Yeah, we, uh, in in the shop I work in, uh, we're working a a variety of metals because this shop uh, in the 18th century also worked a lot of different metals. The the, uh, foundry that that, uh, we work in was originally operated by the Getty family for a period of about 50 years during the 18th century. And although it was normally advertised as a brass foundry, they also did do uh, bronze alloys, which commonly are worked with brass anyway because they're both copper-based alloys. And they also did uh, precious metals casting, mainly silver, I think largely because there was a, a member of the Getty family, James Getty, who was a silversmith. Yeah, well, and, that uh, would explain right, that. Right. So his his brothers actually the ones who ran the foundry, so they would do all the silver casting for him. We still do a lot of uh, silver cast pieces for the silversmiths in cases where they uh, have a part of something, maybe a spout to a coffee pot or a, a border to a tray and. It's something that would be awkward or unprofitable to try to hammer out. And, uh, you know, they might do their own casting, but if a foundry is convenient, a smith often will just farm that out. So we do a lot of work even today for the, the silversmiths in, in Williamsburg. 
normal week, normal period of time. Okay. What would you cast? Well, there again, tremendous variety. Um, in general, the kind of shop we have and the Getty Brothers ran was referred to as a small works uh, foundry. So they weren't making just one type of thing. They weren't a candlestick maker or a buckle maker, but a wide variety of pieces. They might do candlesticks, buckles, furniture hardware, coach work and harness work, bells, uh, sword hilts, gun parts, uh, door knockers, sundials. Uh, all of those are things actually that we know were done in the shop in, in the 18th century and that we still have done you know, in so modern it, times. If it's metal and small. And cast. And, and cast. It's a, and it's a shape that was made by casting, you know, by pouring. Then we, we might do it. You, you could, if, if you felt right. like it, do it. And in all likelihood, probably have at some point. <laughs> We've even done parts for a, an 18th century fire engine. We, some years ago, a lot of the trade shops worked together, and we built a replica of a 1750 model Newsom fire engine. We did all the casting, you know, the pump cylinders and valves and piping and so on. It was unusual job, probably something that would have been done in England rather than the colonies, but... It was a, an interesting uh, aspect. You know, you don't, you don't think of that, but if you have things like 18th century fire engines, which, if I remember correctly, are basically wood, but they have to have fittings on them or it won't work. Right. The parts that actually most part handle the water or something like that would be metal, right? So the pressure tanks and, like I say, valves and, you know, the actual pumping mechanism. Yeah, but that was fun. Yeah, there was. That was just uh, one of many, you know, odd jobs you get in the course of the, the work uh, we do. How long have you done that? Uh, I've been doing it for 30, I think it'll be 38 years uh, in the fall, all with Williamsburg. I served an apprenticeship in the foundry uh, where I work now under Sven Berg, who was master before me for many years. And as you probably know, all the, the trade shops in Williamsburg utilize the apprentice system, and it's usually a period of some years. We, our, our case, uh, usually five, six years. So it's a, a lengthy period. A tailor's apprentice told me recently that his was seven years. It, it varies. Uh, it varies with the uh, person. Uh, in the 18th century, of course, it was a, an individual contract that had been signed, and there were certain sort of common, you know, periods, but in many cases it depended on when you started the, the apprenticeship because they often ended at 21, not always, but frequently. So if you started when you were 15, it was a six-year apprenticeship. If you started when you were 16, it was five years. See, that makes a certain amount of sense uh, on the theory that by the time you get to be 21, you ought, pretty well ought to know what you're going to do. If you started when you were 12, you yeah. probably did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess, uh, any other fun thing like the fire engine? Uh, that really fascinates me. I mean, well, I, I don't know. We get a lot of jobs that uh, perhaps are not odd items, but that we, we might make one time and then never have to make again. I mean, I've made things like ice cream molds for the kitchens, uh, pieces that uh, they just need for a particular place in the historic area. And so often today, things that are needed in the museum are not available. I mean, the 18th century, you could go to a store and buy what you needed. Now, we often have to, the 
tradesmen in in Williamsburg often have to make the things that are. I mean, you can still go to a store, but it, there's nothing there that not, you need. It's not going to look like what we need exactly, exactly. So, so all the, the the little thing, little metal things around here, uh, probably come out of your foundry. Well, well, the other people, not always, because you have uh, a lot of things that are, of course, made by the blacksmiths. In fact, they probably do more general hardware than we do. Uh, the iron being a more of a functional metal in many ways. It wasn't as expensive as brass or bronze. It was stronger. And, you know, so, so many of the, the hardware fixtures around town, architectural hardware and so on, is done by the blacksmith. But you will see a lot of our work uh, around. We'll see it, uh, furniture hardware. You'll see it on the coaches and carriages. We just recently did a, a set of uh, buckles ranging from really big uh, main brace buckles to much smaller ones, door handles and so on for the... Uh, the newest coach that we got, which was the uh, one that represents the Royal Governor's coach, the Dunmore coach. So if you happen to be out and around and you, you see that red and uh, brown coach with the beautiful, huge brass buckles, those are our buckles. Uh, you are they're, they're, uh, working away, and visitors wander through the door. What are they curious about? Well, a lot depends on, you know, the, the visitors. Sometimes they come with, with certain areas of curiosity. But a lot of times it'll just depend on what it is that we're doing at the time, the ongoing work. And, of course, that, in a sense, is the, the way that we design our approach to history is we actually have working trade shops. And the visitor is able to walk into a, a shop, find actual living artisans that are practicing, you know, an 18th century trade, same tool, same process, and whatever's going on is the thing that likely is going to, you know, to attract their attention and elicit questions. Our additional charge, though, is also to uh, to use that sort of as a springboard. You know, we want to talk not just about what we're doing at the moment, but a broader look at the trade and a broader look at the people that practiced the trade and the society at large, you know, how they fit into the, the community. I, I must be slow today, but it finally occurred to me, if you cast something, there's also a lot of handwork after it's cast An enormous to amount. file it down or it smooth it off or filing, whatever, you, you know, whatever you call it. Scraping, sanding, polishing, fitting, assembly. Uh, it, often 90% of the work time is in that. It's also a fair amount of time making molds, uh, you know, the molds that we employ for the, the hotter metals, the metals like brass and bronze and silver. Uh, those are actually not permanent molds. They're made from uh, a molding sand, as it's called. It's actually a sand with a, about a fifth part clay, which acts as the binder for it. But they're good only for one pour. So, you know, every casting that we make, we actually do have to make a, a separate mold for it. So if you, if you made, if you molded something, I don't care, but they, it's a brass mold. All right. The molds might not be exactly the same. Well, they, they will for the most part because that's a good point you bring up that, uh, You'll see in our work, we often do make duplicates. We make a pair of candlesticks. They're pretty close. But when you make a sand mold, you're not carving in the sand. In fact, that's actually impossible. Uh, the sand isn't even as 
moldable as uh, clay. You, you have to shape it by packing the sand over a model, what we call a pattern. So when we make a new piece, the first thing we do is make that pattern, which sometimes we'll do it in a soft metal, just you know, working directly, hammering, filing, whatever. Sometimes we'll carve it in wood or turn it on the lathe in wood. Sometimes we might uh, model it in wax or clay or use a plaster cast. Probably wood and metal, the most, most common pattern. But once we have a pattern, we can use that over and over again. Mm -hmm. so. Because that never comes in contact with the hot metal. That's right. It's, that's, right. that's only the stuff, the exactly. clay and the sand. The idea when you make the sand mold, you make it in sections. So you have at least a two-part mold. You know, envision a, you know, a book or something you can open up. So after you've packed sand on either side, you can open the mold up again, remove the pattern, and then you reassemble the mold to, to actually pour in. Okay, now that's how we get two exactly. du duplicate items or because you know, or whatever. You've got a you've got a pattern, right? And you build the mold around it, so it's going to turn out looking pretty much exactly. like the pattern. So exactly. And you can also have multiple patterns. Uh, just uh, today, uh, this morning, we were making molds for casting just little copper rivets that are used by our coopers in making kegs and barrels that are going to be used for storing gunpowder. And uh, in that case, they don't use iron because when they're repairing them at some point, you don't want to strike a spark. So it's all copper. Well, you don't want to strike. <laughs> if you want to continue doing your right. business. But with, with something like rivets, small little pieces, we put in about uh, 15 or 20 maybe in the mold. We, we make duplicate patterns. So instead of having just one pattern, we'll make, you know, as I say, 10, 15, 20 of them. And that way, each mold will have that many. So that's as close as we get to mass production. But, you know, it does speed it up. Well, I wouldn't call 10 mass. but <laughs> Maybe not a mass, right? A lot of production. <laughs> that's right. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.